Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Did you know that it used to be illegal for married couples to use birth control? Did you know that the Supreme Court only overturned states' laws prohibiting birth control 55 years ago? I did not know that until I did some research in preparation for today's texts. We will be discussing Margaret Sanger's 1918 essay, The Morality of Birth Control, and her 1934 essay, The Case for Birth Control. And here I just want to begin by emphasizing that this project at Breaking Down Patriarchy highlights essential texts that describe the construct of patriarchy and the critiques that have challenged it throughout history. Um, During each episode, we include a biography of the author of the text we're discussing, but that's only to give background and context to the important piece of writing that the person produced. There are other podcasts out there whose purpose is to tell the stories of amazing women, like um, History Chicks is a really great one that I've listened to, um, Encyclopedia Womanica, and What's Her Name um, are all really excellent podcasts that are biography-centric. Um, But our project is about important documents on a historical timeline. And in some ways, the author of a certain text might not necessarily be exemplary. And I say this because the author of this week's text, Margaret Sanger, is a controversial figure. Um, She was an American birth control activist, a sex educator, a writer, and a nurse working in the World War I era and the 1920s and 30s. And, and beyond in the 40s and 50s as well. She popularized the term birth control, opened the first birth control clinic in the United States, and established organizations that evolved into Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Um, her essays, The Morality in Birth Control and The Case for Birth Control, were critically important in challenging patriarchal norms. And they're found on almost every women's history reading list. But Sanger was also involved in the eugenics movement, and she rubbed shoulders with some very racist people. Um, And some have accused Sanger herself of racist views. And because of that, some organizations have disavowed her. And so I just want to start by saying that we at Breaking Down Patriarchy disavow and condemn racism in every form, full stop. So today, as in every episode, we will simply be examining these texts and their significance on our historical timeline as we strive to understand patriarchy and its critiques. Um, But also before we continue the discussion, I want to introduce my reading partner today, Courtney McPhee. Hi, Courtney, and welcome back to Breaking Down Patriarchy. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Um, Courtney, one thing about you is that you do not seem to be afraid of complicated narratives. (laughs) Um, Courtney was my reading partner when we discussed the Seneca Falls Convention, and we talked about the racist invectives of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And Courtney, I really admire about you that you tackle texts with such intelligence and compassion, and that you don't shy away from a challenge. (laughs) So if you didn't hear our our episode on Seneca Falls, go back and listen to it. It's really great. Um, But just to introduce Courtney a little bit, she's a high school English teacher outside of Washington, D.C., where she fights for equity and representation in the classroom. Another highlight about Courtney is that she loves podcasts. Her favorite NPR uh, or her favorite podcast is NPR's Code Switch. 
She has loved participating in the podcast, she says, because her undergrad offerings of women's studies courses was extremely limited. So she feels like she is getting the solid education in feminist lit that she always wanted. Um, well, me too, Courtney. That's the goal. Um, it's The goal is to finally understand how things evolve for women the way that they did. And again, this is a topic that I really had almost no knowledge about at all. If you'd asked me when women were first allowed to use birth control, and just to point out, it was a group of men deciding whether women should or shouldn't be allowed to use birth control. That's why this is on a podcast about patriarchy. Um, I wouldn't have known the answer. And my point of reference recently um, about like women's reproductive rights, honestly, has been called the midwife, <laughs> which is funny that that's my reference, but it's a fantastic show if you haven't watched it, and I highly recommended it. Recommend it. But anyway, let's dive in and learn a little bit about the author of these texts, Morality and Birth Control and the Case for Birth Control, which is Margaret Sanger. So, Courtney, could you introduce us to this author? Absolutely. Sanger was born Margaret Louise Higgins in 1879 in Corning, New York, to Irish Catholic parents. Her mother, Anne Purcell, had left Ireland during the potato famine and married Michael Higgins in 1869. In 22 years, Anne Higgins conceived 18 times, birthing 11 alive before dying at age 49. Margaret was the sixth of 11 surviving children, spending her childhood doing household chores and caring for family members. Supported by her two older sisters, Margaret Higgins attended Claveret College and Hudson River Institute before enrolling in 1900 at White Plains Hospital as a nurse probationer. In 1902, she married architect William Singer, giving up her education. She suffered consumption, which we now call tuberculosis, but Margaret Singer was able to bear three children and the family eventually settled in New York City. Sanger's political interests, her emerging feminism, and her nursing experience all led her to write two series of columns on sex education, which were titled What Every Mother Should Know from 1911 to 1912 and What Every Girl Should Know from 1912 to 1913. These were in the socialist magazine New York Call. By the standards of the day, Sanger's articles were extremely frank in their discussion of sexuality, and many New York Call readers were outraged by them. At the time Singer was writing, access to contraceptive information was prohibited on grounds of obscenity by the 1873 federal Comstock law and many state laws. All mentions of female reproductive function and any type of birth control in any form were prohibited. Individuals convicted of violating the Comstock Act could receive up to five years of imprisonment with hard labor and a fine of up to $2,000. As a nurse working among working-class immigrant women, Sanger met women who underwent frequent childbirth, miscarriages, and self-induced abortions because they had no information on how to avoid unwanted pregnancy. Seeking to help these women, Sanger visited public libraries, but she was unable to find information on contraception. She often told the story of being called to the apartment of a woman, Sadie Sachs, who had tried to induce her own abortion and become extremely ill. Sadie told Sanger that she had begged her doctor to tell her how she could prevent this from happening again, to which her doctor simply advised her to remain abstinent. His exact words and actions apparently were to laugh and to say, you want your cake while you eat it too, do you? Well, it can't be done. I'll tell you the only sure thing to do. Tell Jake to sleep on the roof. A few months later, Sanger was called back to Sadie's apartment 
apartment, only this time Sadie died shortly after Singer arrived. She had attempted yet another self-induced abortion. Sanger would sometimes end the story by saying, I threw my nursing bag in the in the corner and announced that I would never take another case until I had made it possible for working women in America to have the knowledge to control birth. Sanger opposed abortion, but primarily as a public health danger, which would disappear if women were able to prevent unwanted pregnancy. Given the connection between contraception and working-class empowerment, Sanger came to believe that only by liberating women from the risk of unwanted pregnancy would fundamental social change take place. She launched a campaign to challenge government censorship of contraception information. In 1914, Sanger launched The Woman Rebel, an eight-page monthly newsletter which promoted contraception. Sanger, collaborating with anarchist friends, popularized the term birth control as a more candid alternative to euphemisms such as family limitation. Sanger proclaimed that each woman should be the absolute mistress of her own body. In these early years of Sanger's activism, she viewed birth control as a free speech issue. And when she started publishing The Woman Rebel, one of her goals was to provoke a legal challenge to the federal anti-obscenity laws, which banned dissemination of information about contraception. Postal authorities suppressed five of its seven issues, but Sanger continued publication, all the while preparing a 16-page pamphlet called Family Limitation, which contained detailed information and graphic descriptions of various contraceptive methods. In August 1914, Margaret Sanger was indicted for violating postal obscenity laws by sending the woman rebel through the postal system. Rather than stand trial, she fled the country. Margaret Sanger spent much of her exile in Europe, where she met with thinkers who helped develop socioeconomic justifications for birth control. She shared their concern that overpopulation led to poverty, famine, and war, and this would be a concern of hers for the rest of her life. Some countries in northwestern Europe had more liberal policies towards contraception than the United States at this time, which is still the case, of course. And when Sanger visited a Dutch birth control clinic in 1915, she learned about diaphragms and became convinced that they were a more effective means of contraception than the suppositories and douches that she had been distributing back in the United States. Diaphragms were generally not available in the United States, so Sanger and others began importing them from Europe in defiance of United States law. On October 16, 1916, Sanger opened a family planning and birth control clinic in the Brownsville neighborhood of Brooklyn, the first of its kind in the United States. Nine days after the clinic opened, Sanger was arrested. After multiple arrests, sentences, and jail time, Sanger still stated to a judge, I cannot respect the law as it exists today. For this, she was sentenced to 30 more days in a workhouse. After World War I, Sanger shifted away from radical politics, and she founded the American Birth Control League, ABCL, in 1921, which enlarged her base of supporters to include the middle class. The founding principles of the ABCL were as follows. We hold that children should be, one, conceived in love, two, born of the mother's conscious desire, three, and only begotten under conditions which render possible the heritage of health. Therefore, we hold that every woman must possess the power and freedom to prevent conception except when those conditions can be satisfied. In 1922, she traveled to China, Korea, and Japan. In China, she observed that the primary method of family planning was female infanticide, and she later worked with Pearl Buck to establish a family planning clinic in Shanghai. 
After World War I, Sanger increasingly appealed to the societal need to limit births by those least able to afford children. The affluent and educated already limited their childbearing, while the poor and uneducated lacked access to contraception and information about birth control. Here she found an area of overlap with eugenicists. She believed that they both sought to assist the race toward the elimination of the unfit. She did not speak specifically about the idea of race or ethnicity being determining factors of fitness or unfitness. Instead, she stressed limiting the number of births to live within one's economic ability to raise and support healthy children. This would lead to a betterment of society and the human race. Sanger's view put her at odds with leading American eugenicists such as Charles Davenport, who took a racist view of inherited traits. However, in a history of birth control movement in America, Engelman noted that Sanger quite effortlessly looked the other way when others spouted racist speech. She had no reservation about relying on flawed and overtly racist works to serve her own propaganda needs. This association with eugenicists has understandably led to a lot of controversy. But her influence on women's reproductive rights is undisputed. Sanger's fight for birth control directly resulted in the following. 1918, doctors were first allowed to prescribe contraception. 1932, doctors were first allowed to save women's lives by sending pregnant patients to hospitals for abortions if they determined that childbirth would endanger the mother's life. 1936, physicians were first allowed to obtain contraceptives. This court victory motivated the American Medical Association in 1937 to adopt contraception as a normal medical service and a key component of medical school curriculums. In 1937, Sanger became chairman of the newly formed Birth Control Council of America, which eventually was renamed Planned Parenthood, a name Sanger objected to because she thought it was too euphemistic. In the early 1950s, Sanger encouraged the development of the birth control pill, which would become become available in the 1960s. Sanger died of congestive heart failure in 1966 in Tucson, Arizona at the age of 86, about a year after the U.S. Supreme Court case Griswold v. Connecticut, which determined that states could not ban the use of birth control for married couples. Okay, awesome. Thank you, Courtney. Um so now let's move on to the texts themselves, now that you've set the stage for um, everything that was going on at the time. So first, I'll take her uh, 1918 speech, Morality and Birth Control, and then Courtney, you'll take the case for birth control afterwards. So um, Morality and Birth Control was a pamphlet that Margaret Sanger wrote again in 1918. And I'm just going to read some excerpts, and then we can discuss them. So I will start with the very beginning of the pamphlet. She starts it this way. She says, quote, throughout the ages, every attempt woman has made to strike off the shackles of slavery has been met with the argument that such an act would result in the downfall of her morality. Suffrage was going to break up the home. Higher education would unfit her for motherhood and co-education would surely result in making her immoral. Even today, in some of the more backward countries, reading and writing is stoutly discouraged by the clerical powers because women may read about things they should not know. We now know that there never can be a free humanity until woman is freed from ignorance. And we know, too, that woman can never call herself free until she is mistress of her own body. Just so long as man dictates and controls the standards of sex morality, 
Just so long will man control the world. That's the end of that quote. So I have a lot of thoughts about this passage. Um, I I think back to the very first, um, well, not the very first, maybe the, the second and third episodes of the podcast where we were reading The Creation of Patriarchy by Gerda Lerner about um, the advent of the agricultural revolution. And that was, it was all the way back then when men began seeing women as producers of babies. And so women's bodies were seen as commodities, um, providers of pleasure for men and providers of population that the men could control. And so um, Lerner asserts that that's when men started thinking of themselves as owning women's bodies. And um, it just reminds me of more examples from that time forward of this um, concept that men and women both have bought into that men somehow have control and ownership or stewardship over women's bodies in ways that women have never felt about men's and boys' bodies. Um, I think about sexual as- assault and harassment often comes from just an attitude of male ownership. I've been watching Mad Men, the show Mad Men. Have you seen it, Courtney? I have. <laughs> yeah, it's so eye-opening. Mm-hmm. Um, just the the attitude of the men seeing those women in their offices just as um, kind of existing to please them, mm-hmm. right? That they really do have a sense of ownership and the women unconsciously, because that's all they know, buy into it too. And in, in different ways, according, you know, in different women. But um, I, I think all sexual assault and harassment and rape comes from a presumption that a male can use a female's body because he he has a right to. He, I mean, obviously a rape by a stranger has been regarded as a crime for a long time. Um, also because a lot of times that was considered um, a, a crime against another man or it was ruining the girl's virtue. Then, And some men cared more about that than they cared about hurting the girl. But um, but at least rape by a stranger has been considered a, a crime for a long time. But um, in marriage, men believed that they were acquiring a bride as their property until really recently. And I think in some marriages still. Um, and he had a right to her sexually. I, I did some research when we were um, preparing for this episode, and I learned that marital rape was not considered rape in all 50 states in the United States until 1993. Yeah. Um, and I think still, it's something that people don't talk about. You know, we hear about rape and they're it, all rape stories are horrific, but I don't like I feel like I haven't heard a lot of stories about marital rape, but it's it's still rape. That's yeah, I hadn't either. This is the, that was really new to me. Um, and just that that concept that even like in some like marriage ceremonies, if they're based in older traditions, often religious traditions, there is that concept of, you know, a father giving his daughter to her new husband. And there, there is an aspect of ownership in that, right? You're transferring ownership. And now that husband owns his wife. And that's where that expectation of, you know, sexual duty comes from. And that it's a woman's duty to perform the way her husband wants her to. And so he has a right to take it, Mm -hmm. you know, that it's, it's, that's his woman, right? 
and he can do with her body what he wants to. Um, I, I mean, there are also like really extreme examples of this, like some acts of mass violence. Like I read, you know, about recently a truck driven into a crowd and the the driver of the truck had posted on social media that he was part of a group called the incels which are it stands for involuntary celibates and they believe that they have a right to have a woman and they're infuriated that no one has chosen them and so they want to impose enforced monogamy so that every man can be provided with a woman like again, like they are just objects that they're commodities mm-hmm. for men to own, mm-hmm. um, and that it's it's a right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That they're infuriated because their rights are being being violated. That they can't own a woman. Like, um, yeah. I I mean, I read a couple of of terrible acts of violence where a man went in and just mowed down. With a with a gun, a women's yoga studio recently killing women. I mean, these are acts of outright. I mean, when you think of the word misogyny, meaning hatred of women, literally misogyny. Mm-hmm. That's what misogyny is, right? Mm-hmm. Like hatred of women because they're not providing what they think. Anyway, this is all to say these are. I mean, there's all these ex- horrifying examples. I think actually there are even some subtle ones like. Um, modesty rules. We grew up with a pamphlet called For the Strength of Youth um, in our religious tradition. And it had some really great common sense things that I can still get behind in that pamphlet. Not everything in it was problematic, but modesty rules, when you think of like a group of men making rules about what girls and women can wear, there's there's a an underlying belief that they have the right to do that, that, that some, a group of men has the right to tell me what modesty means, what I'm allowed to wear. There's just this, this concept that I, that I bought into as well, that was subtle, so subtle that I didn't even notice, didn't even know that that's what it was, that they would have the right to make rules about I could wear, what I could wear. I would never presume to, to, <laughs> I couldn't even think of a, like a group of women telling men in general, what they are allowed to wear. Um, uh, and that brings up all kinds of things, those modesty rules. You know, you have, I just looking back in retrospect, think of all of the pressure I felt from different groups of men mm-hmm. who had opinions about my body. I remember just an overall kind of like, really violating sense that I was being looked at. And we've talked about this in other episodes on the podcast and we'll continue to, but of women's bodies being that men just have a right, feel like they have a right to comment on them. And, and I felt like as a teenager, I think I had these competing like groups of one group of teenage boys, like whistling at me and wanting me to be sexier and wanting me to show more of my body for their pleasure. Right. And then I had, because I grew up, um, in such a conservative religious environment, I had a, another group of men and boys telling me, no, cover up your body. And you, we don't want you to make us think sexual thoughts. So don't be sexual. And I, I felt like I was getting torn in half by like these two groups of men that now that I look back on it with, with through these lenses, I just feel like, why did they feel like they had a right to my body and to how I dressed. I, um, anyway, I just think um, 
Margaret Sanger really nails it right in the beginning of the pamphlet. Yeah. What do you think, Corey? And I And I think um, it reminds me of the saying that the, the women behind Beauty Redefined coined that says, my body is an instrument, not an ornament. And mm-hmm. just how that idea that women's bodies are ornamental, they're there for your viewing pleasure or to cover up because you don't want to be thinking sexual thoughts, but it's there to look at. It's there to be used rather than mm-hmm. a woman being able to use her body as she sees fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Exactly. Wait, what was the name of the the organization that you just... That's Beauty put? Redefined. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've heard you talk about that before. I'm going to look into that more. Um, okay, that was the first thought is just... And that's, I mean, we're not even yet talking about like the number of children that a woman has, but I guess just this foundational concept that she starts out with um, when she says that, that it is men dictating and controlling um, women's bodies. And that's the foundational concept. So now she gets into birth control itself. So the next point I want to highlight is where she says, quote, birth control is the first important step woman must take toward the goal of her freedom. It is the first step she must take to be man's equal. It is the first step they both must take toward human emancipation. So thinking about this quote, I was just thinking how biologically it's just set up that men don't have to have accountability for their sexual choices, right? I mean, if they want to, they can impregnate a woman and just walk away. And that happens all the time and always has. Um, and so because we're set up that way in, in an unjust, in a way that lends itself so easily to injustice, I guess, just by our anatomy, uh, it it has to be society's role to make rules to level the playing field and to help men take ownership that they themselves are the children of women and that they are the parents of children, that men can't see childbirth as a women's issue, exactly. right? It, yeah. it doesn't make sense that a man would be like, that's a woman's issue. He himself came from a woman. He, and if, and Anyway, that men are equally involved in this process. And not even just equally involved, but like uh, it, it reminds me of Gabby Blair's Twitter thread about birth control when she talked yes. about, you know, like men could theoretically um, create a life multiple times a day. Like he could create thousands of children throughout his life, whereas a woman can only have a child once every, you know, nine months and that would be, you know, a lot of having a baby every nine months. But still, like mm-hmm. women can can only have one baby within a nine month period where a man can create a life as many times as he wants, as t- many times as he wants. And yet there's there's not the responsibility of of men to to limit their life creating, you know, abilities. It's all on the woman. So I like that she says that it's um that it's the first step they must both take toward human emancipation. Like this is, like you said, it's not a woman's issue. Like this is a human issue. Such a great point. And if, if for listeners, if you haven't read um, Gabrielle Blair's Twitter thread, I think she says it's my Twitter thread on abortion specifically. She's also known as um, design mom. She has a really popular and amazing blog 
and website called Design Mom. Look it up right now because I've read it several times and it really, it, I th- found it so insightful and it it helped me see things in a way I'd never considered before. It's a really powerful piece. So thanks for bringing that up, Court. Okay, so let's see. The next point from this, from her pamphlet that I wanted to highlight, she shares a bunch of stories from her work as a nurse. And this is where I was just picturing in my mind Call the midwife, where you have like a, a different story of an, an anecdote of a real woman and um, how these issues, which can be just read in an essay as as theoretical, but this is these are real women's lives, and she shares a few anecdotes. So I'm going to read one of them. Let's see. She said she starts off by saying, "For 14 years, I worked as a nurse in the factory and tenement districts of New York City." Eight years ago, I was called into a home where the father, a machinist by trade, was earning $18 a week. He was at the time the father of six living children, to all appearances a sober, serious, and hardworking man. His wife, a woman in the 30s, I guess in her 30s, toiled early and late helping him to keep the home together and the little ones out of the sweatshops, for they were both anxious to give their children a little schooling. Two years ago, I came across this same family and found that five more children had been added in the meantime to their household. The three youngest were considered by medical authorities to be hopelessly feeble-minded. Two of the older girls were prostitutes. Three of the boys were serving long-term sentences in penitentiaries, while another of the children had been injured by a fall and so badly crippled that she will not be able to help herself for years to come. Out of this family of 11 children, only two are now of any use to society, a little girl of seven who stays at home and cares for her crippled sister during the day while the mother scrubs office floors, and a boy of nine who sells chewing gum after school hours at a subway exit. The father has become a hopeless drunkard of whom the mother and children live in terror. This is but one illustration of the results of our present-day morality— Here was an opportunity for society to develop and preserve six children for human service. But prudery and ignorance added five more to this group, with the result that two out of the 11 are left to fit the struggle against pauperism and charity. Will they succumb? The the words prudery and ignorance stand out for me in that that last... Mm -hmm. Um, sentence because she's calling out the the kind of puritanical culture that where again the people in charge which happen to be all men at this time uh, not just happen to be they are like by definition all men at this time are deeming it inappropriate and obscene to even speak about how conception happens and they call that morality, right? And keeping women and men in ignorance of how of how conception happens mm-hmm. and who's suffering. Everybody, women and men and children, all human beings are suffering because of these rules. Um and then she I'll just summarize this next story very quickly, but she she then tells a story about five orphan girls who um whom Margaret knew in her work as a nurse and they they were orphaned. Their mother died, I think, in childbirth. And these girls were sexually abused by men living in their apartment building. Um, and she says this, um, 
quote, these five girl women did not ask society to fill their minds as it was willing to do with a useless knowledge of Greek, Latin, or the sciences, but they did need and unconsciously demand the knowledge of life, of hygiene and sex psychology, which is so prudishly and shamefully denied them. That's such a powerful quote. I think so too. And and um, this is where she's referring to, I mean, just the, the complete lack and prohibition at the time on sex education. And we could talk for a while too about the current state of sex education. And I know that my, um, I was really impacted by an article I read in the Atlantic a few years ago about how the Dutch view sex education. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's worth looking up as well. Um, That they just take the shame out of it and treat it as like any other thing that you would learn about in school. We learn about how our skeletal systems. Yes. I mean, we, we learn every other part of human life with, with excitement and joy. And we teach our kids all about everything in the world, but we feel like that is something that we shouldn't that we shouldn't talk about because it's again we I mean in a lot of places in the United States people just think that it's inappropriate and it's, it's and still we view it this way right mm-hmm. and so what it's what it leads to if you look at the data that if you compare the data of the Netherlands and the United States we have far more unwanted pregnancies which leads to um, poverty it leads to more abortions we have a much higher abortion rate. Um, than in the Netherlands because the foundation the the we have more unwanted pregnancies and Dutch um, adults often also report greater sexual satisfaction as they get older and just greater happiness in general and more control over their lives and there's also um, if you interview Dutch boys and men they have they report greater like respect for girls and women's bodies and um, just an attitude of of like you pointed out with Gabrielle Blair's article of boys and men growing up thinking I would never um, harm a woman that way, or I would never risk bringing a child into the world. So because they grow up knowing about it, boys and girls together from the time they're preschoolers, they're able to make more responsible decisions. And that that leads to greater happiness on an individual level. And it also leads to a, a much smaller burden on society because of bringing, you know, like like Sanger just talked about with these anecdotes, bringing children into the world that the parents can't care for, despite their best efforts, they they can't care for them, and so the burden falls to society. I want to bring up one more point from from this pamphlet. Um, she says she points out a class issue a, a, a division between classes she says quote has knowledge of birth control so carefully guarded and so secretly practiced by the women of the wealthy class and so tenaciously withheld from the working women brought them misery rather has it not promoted greater happiness greater freedom greater prosperity and more harmony among them The women who have this knowledge are the women who have been free to develop, free to enjoy in its best sense, and free to advance the interests of the community. And their men are the ones who motor, who sail yachts, who legislate, who lead and control. The women, men, and children of this class do not form any part whatever in the social problems of our times. Um, 
oh, actually, I am going to read the next little bit because she said, says, had this class, so the wealthy class, continued to reproduce in the prolific manner of the working people in the past 25 years, can human imagination picture what conditions would be today? All of our problems are the result of overbreeding among the working class. And if morality is to mean anything at all to us, we must regard all the changes which tend toward the uplift and survival of the human race as moral. Okay, so the first part, I'm on board. <laughs> She's like, yeah, I mean, this is this is the case, right? That that the wealthy do often even that they're able to kind of get around the law. They're able to obtain the diaphragms that they need through, like, they have connections and they can pay, right, to to get what they need for birth control or even obtain abortions that are more expensive. And then they, they don't talk about it. Right. And it's really the, the, the uh, less wealthy and the less advantaged and privileged who have to deal with this problem. Then she goes into some things where I kind of go, Oh, there <laughs> that that's where kind of it gets problematic where she's referring to eugenics mentality, where I, I feel like it's one thing to express empathy for the plight of impoverished mothers, which she does. But then it's another thing to say, like overbreeding among the working class and how that um, it sounds like the upper class people almost had superior genes that she thinks like, oh, the world would be so such a better place if if the wealthy class had just produce tons and tons of children. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, and not just that the wealthy class had superior opportunities. Right. Um, so that to me is where it, um, it becomes problematic. And then in her last sentence of the pamphlet, she talks about how this is moral and it leads to ultimately a cleaner race. Mm -hmm. And so it ends on a note that you just go, Oh no, (laughs) (laughs) you lost. Um, yeah. You lost me exactly, and and I do want to say again, she she's talking about a cleaner human race. She's not talking about the the Caucasian race, but nevertheless, that's really problematic. And I think Courtney, you're going to talk about that more in your pamphlet. And that's all I have for the first one. So right. you, yeah, you want to take it away with the the case for birth control, Court? Yes. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the case for birth control, which was published in The Woman Citizen. Um, interestingly enough, we are looking up dates as we've been researching, and we find three different dates that this was published. The first says 1917. We've also seen 1924 as well as 1934. So, yeah, um, I think I said 1934 at the beginning, and now we're realizing there are multiple dates. So if I was wrong, then... I'm glad you fact-checked me, Courtney, and, then, and we'll just have to look when we're done and, and see the the definitive year on that. Sorry about that. Uh, I'm just going to start with um, how she starts. So, everywhere we look, we see poverty and large families going hand in hand. We see hordes of children whose parents cannot feed, clothe, or educate even one half of the number born to them. We see sick, harassed, broken mothers whose health and nerves cannot bear the strain of further childbearing. We see fathers growing despondent and desperate because their labor cannot bring the necessary wage to keep their growing families. We see that those parents who are least fit to reproduce the race are having the largest number of children, while people of wealth, leisure, and education are having small families. So again, this phrasing of least fit to produce the race calls upon eugenics. She thinks that those who are poor and the working class are unfit to reproduce based on who they are as humans, while wealthy people deserve to have more children. Um, So 
probably a better phrasing would be um, something like those who struggle to be able to care for the children the way they wish they could. Or um, how about accounting for families of diminished resources who do provide love and safety and dignity for their children? I know many of those families, um, and there are plenty of wealthy families who neglect or abuse their children. So it, it doesn't have to do with wealth or class or privilege. There are families who do provide for their children and families who don't. And it, it doesn't matter what their their station in life is. So Sanger goes on to say um, situations when people should not have children. And she says um, people who are feeble-minded or insane should not have children. She also says that um, those who already have children who are not normal should not have any more children. So, um, and even remember those who experienced depression or other mental illness were considered insane. And she's saying that they they don't deserve to have children. So that's a really problematic idea and um, hits upon those eugenics that these people are unfit to have children. So, and contribute to the human race. But she also states that um, people should not have children if they have gonorrhea or syphilis, um, which is understandable because um, before they were treatable, sexually transmitted infections could cause severe impact on newborns. Um, But then I think the next set of circumstances under which she says that couples should not have children are really compelling. Um, She states that the age of parents should be 23 for the mother and 25 for the father. So the average age of marriage in the 1920s was 21 for women and 25 for men. And Sanger recommends that couples should wait two years before having children so they can truly get to know one another. When I was first married, it seemed like everyone around me got pregnant within the first year of being married. And I felt like I had been married for ages and ages um, by waiting for two and a half years to have my first baby. So I think that Mm -hmm. this is, uh, I like this idea of waiting, especially because at this time it was, you know, much more common for couples to not have sex before being married and certainly not living together. And so she's just advocating for that, for really getting to know one another and establish like a, a, a solid foundation of the family before adding children. So then Sanger states that children should be three years apart, one year postpartum, which includes nursing the baby, then one year for recovery and rest and, you know, being able to enjoy motherhood, and then the next year for the next pregnancy. So the current average gap between children in the United States is two and a half years. And there's always been a lot of pressure on women, not only about when and how many children they should have, but also age gaps. Um, When I had my first child and she turned one, I got so many comments from people at church and even strangers about how it was time to have another baby. And people assumed I was pregnant or at least trying once uh, my baby turned one. I don't know, Amy, did you feel pressured about how close your kids would be or when to have kids? Yep. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I mean, I mean, just for you to say, uh, like at that time, people didn't typically have sex before marriage and they got married very young. As we both know, that's, that's still the case within our religious tradition of Mormonism. Right. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. why. So I, I, I mean, I think that my friends that are not Mormon, (laughs) my, my many friends who grew up in other contexts, wouldn't they they kind of look at me like what they they kind of right i mean you too right they they kind of can't believe that um it's like we grew up in some ways that we grew up like 50 years ago 
aren't 50 years before. So yeah, I, I, one story I thought of, um, was my friend, one of my close friends, moms told her how disappointed she was that they were going to stop, that her daughter was going to stop at four children because she said, think of all of those spirits that could have come to your family and now they're going to get sent to drug addicts. I can't can't really like, (laughs) right. Um, cause I mean that, and that, uh, refers to Mormon theology that uh, a person's spirit is already already exists kind of in in heaven before they come to earth and so there's a finite number of spirits and they all need bodies and so for Mormons um, at least for until recently I think that the emphasis has changed now in our generation it's changing gradually but for a long time Mormons felt like they needed to have as many babies as possible to bring those spirits to good homes. And so there's this weird kind of like overlap between Margaret Sanger and Mormon theology for very different reasons, but that um, they both emphasize that the right kind of people should have lots of kids to save um, like people from going to the wrong families. That's so (laughs) interesting. That's actually something I've never reflected on with Mormonism. So that's, I'm going to be thinking about that all day. I do have to say, though, I do want to throw in here that I don't know how you felt, but from our parents, Courtney and I are sisters, um, and I really appreciated dad specifically said to me a couple of times that I should not feel any pressure Mm -hmm. to have a certain number of kids, that I shouldn't have them close together. He almost kind of, if if he had an opinion, it was advocating waiting a little longer and being older. And he he often brought up that his mother was one of two children and that was a full and complete family and I shouldn't feel any pressure. And I feel really grateful because it really just depends on the family you're raised in. I agree. Um, and I mean, I um, I waited the longest in our family to have children. Um, you did. Even though I got married the youngest. <laughs> and, um, and then my children are all five and a half years apart. So I even after I had my first and I was referencing like, oh, we should have another. And, and our dad just saying like, there is, there is zero pressure on you. Like if you just are going to have the one, like nobody, it, nobody in this family cares. So yeah, yeah, I think that that was very rare. Actually, I but, think you're right. Yeah. I'm, I'm grateful. Me too. Um, okay. So Sanger goes on to say, It is generally conceded by sociologists and scientists that a nation cannot go on indefinitely multiplying without eventually reaching the point when population presses upon means of subsistence. While in this country there is perhaps no need for immediate alarm on this account, there are many other reasons for demanding birth control. So this is... um, this is interesting talking about overpopulation in the um, and there were a lot of warnings about overpopulation in the 1960s. So a little past um, Sanger's time, but um, population has continued to grow despite these warnings. So um, research shows that the UN's predictions of the world's population reaching 9.7 billion by 2050 is a realistic projection and it's very alarming. So a New York Times article from 2017 stated that countries facing massive overpopulation would require economic growth that's virtually impossible. So the jobs required to support that population, it's, it's, just, it's just not possible. And especially as we're looking at um, the overpopulation that reaches um, some of the 
the poorest populations as we talk about with birth control without having access. And then these populations are also going to be largely impacted by climate change. And so these issues in the world are being concentrated on those who have the fewest resources to deal with them. So, and as Sanger noted, and as we as we see, as nations grow wealthier, the birth rate drops. So mm-hmm. it's these these countries that don't have the resources um, and they are experiencing the most um, population growth. So. Um, so that's interesting. Sorry, I'm just thinking. I mean, so you can I'm I'm getting inside Sanger's head a little bit where she does talk about like that she doesn't want people without resources to be having all of these children, right? You can, you can kind of see where she's coming from on that. It's just, I I guess the attitude of, um, of saying that they don't deserve to have children or that it will like make an unclean race. That's the problem. But yeah, I guess we've already said this, but just, um, that, that phrase that you just used, I thought, yeah, exactly. It's, it's these, these people who, need education to know how to limit their families so that they themselves can flourish and thrive and live happy, fulfilled lives so that the parents and the children and their societies and our societies as a whole can thrive. Yeah. And that it's a choice, right? Like if you still want to have 11 children, great. (laughs) But, um, Mm -hmm. but if you, if you know that you can only provide for one or two children, you should be able to make that choice to not have more than one or two or Or none. none. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Okay. So Sanger continues and says, at present for the poor mother, there's only one alternative to the necessity of bearing children year after year, regardless of her health, of the welfare of the children she already has and of the income of the family. This alternative is abortion, which is so common as to be almost universal, especially where there are rigid laws against imparting information for the prevention of conception. It has been estimated that there are about one million abortions in the United States each year. So um, the Brookings Institute states that about 50 percent of pregnancies in the United States are unplanned, um, which is a much higher rate than other developed countries. And um, Washington University at St. Louis, um, their medical school states that birth control, when birth control is available at no cost, it decreases abortions up to 78 percent. So just amazing. Yeah, an incredible amount. Carissa Hogerberg is an assistant professor of history at Tulane University, and she stated in an NPR interview that before Roe v. Wade, 20 percent of pregnancies ended in abortion which seems like an incredibly high statistic. Like I'm having, I don't know what, um, what research she did, but that I have a hard time wrapping my brain around that. Mm -hmm. But regardless, um, there have been many abortions, especially before, um, they were legal. And so, um, and that's what Margaret Sanger is talking about, because obviously this was before Roe v. Wade, which I know you're going to talk about in a future episode. But mm-hmm. um, yeah. it is important to remember that methods that women turn to um, when abortion is neither legal nor accessible are very serious. Um, self-induction methods include accidents like a woman throwing herself down the stairs 
or a woman could use objects like a coat hanger to enter pregnancy. Um, other women drink poisons, or if they did not follow these methods, they could turn to the black market of, of abortion providers, some of which were not trained in gynecological care at all, which and many of them ended in botched abortions and resulting in sepsis and death and and doctors could get in trouble. And so there weren't hospital privileges. And it's just it's very serious to think about what women had to turn to when they knew that they could not have another child. Mm -hmm. um, and Sanger says to force poor mothers to resort to this dangerous and health destroying method of curtailing their families is cruel, wicked and heartless and is often the mothers who care most about the welfare of their children who are willing to undergo any pain or risk to prevent the coming of infants for whom they cannot properly care. Wow. So the current um, mortality rate for abortions is 0.7%. So it's um, it's very safe to get an abortion currently. Um, but the mortality rate for black women is um, much higher. In fact, it's twice as high as it is for white women, even currently. And that's really important to notice that um, that black women have such a high mortality rate in in all childbearing procedures, whether that's abortion or pregnancy or birth, there's just such a high risk for Black women in this country. I was just, yeah, I was just going to say, I think that's some that's something that I'm hearing about and, and reading about more and more is um, those statistics, even across other parts of the medical mm -hmm. field as well, right? That just the, the, poorer outcomes for people of color across the board and then particularly women in this country it's really sobering and something that I'm again I'm just hearing about more now mm -hmm. and need to look into yeah. more it's awful even <laughs> black infants have a higher rate of death if they have a white uh, pediatrician than if they have a black pediatrician what yeah this is an article that recently came out so, I mean, it's, it's it's hard to even know how to process the information, let alone what to do. I don't. I Yeah, I need to read more about this because that's just um, that's devastating to hear that. I'm glad you mentioned it. Yeah. So um, Sanger also in talking about abortion rate at the time, um, the mortality rate of abortions in the early 20th century accounted for 20% of maternal deaths. So that is a, a very high percentage of deaths um, among women. Wow. So um, Sanger ends by saying, we want mothers to be fit. We want them to conceive in joy and gladness. We want them to carry their babies during the nine months in a sound and healthy body and with a happy, joyous, hopeful mind. It is almost impossible to imagine the suffering caused to women, the mental agony they endure when their days and nights are haunted by the fear of undesired pregnancy. When children are conceived in love and born into an atmosphere of happiness, then will parenthood be a glorious privilege and the children will grow to resemble gods. This can only be obtained through the knowledge and practice of birth control. Sanger makes such a clear argument here, and I have to admit I don't I don't really I have a hard time wrapping my mind around how someone could oppose this really um, that women are healthier and more able to contribute truly more powerful when they can choose when and how many children they have. 
And she's, she states also that um, the American Birth Control League desires the instruction in birth control should be given by the medical profession. Only through individual care and treatment can a woman be given the best and safest means of controlling her offspring. This makes me think of what we said before about um, disseminating the information about birth control. And I think this sets the stage for proper sex education to be given in schools, um, Mm -hmm. which is still an issue in the United States. Currently, sex education is mandated in only 24 states and the District of Columbia. And five of the states with the highest teen birth rates are not mandated to teach about contraception, but are mandated to teach abstinence. Mm-hmm. That's not surprising. No. Right? <laughs> no. <laughs> and and yet they persist in this flawed logic that is in complete defiance of the data. It's right. like you said, like, how can anyone disagree with this? Mm-hmm. And and I, I, I just feel like we all want the same thing. Nobody wants... By definition, nobody wants an unwanted pregnancy, (laughs) right? And so we all have that same goal. So why can we not look at the data? If we look at the Netherlands and see the data, we can see that 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 yields results that everyone wants. So why don't we just lead with the data in making those choices? Yes. I think following that data is really important. And like you said, everyone wants fewer unwanted pregnancies and which results in fewer abortions. And I think that that's what Sanger is really advocating for. Like, we have the knowledge of what to do to reduce unwanted pregnancies, so we need to use it. And that's that's mm-hmm. essentially what she's saying in, in her article here. Mm-hmm. In, in both articles, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So what would you say... Um, as we wrap up, what would you say some of your most important takeaways are from this material? So I think um, one of my takeaways, despite Sanger being a problematic person, is just being incredibly impressed and thankful for her work. Sex is such a taboo topic still in this country, and she made serious waves in giving women control over their own sexuality as well as their roles within their families. And as someone from a conservative religious upbringing, it was really only the latter half of the 20th century that our community openly allowed birth control, and permanent forms of birth control are still often discouraged. And as someone who was married at age 20 while still working on an undergraduate degree, birth control was vital in my being able to complete a college degree. It was also essential to me when I became a single mother 10 years later and was working a full-time job and entering the dating scene. So I think it's really important to recognize like how important that work of birth control is, of making it accessible and affordable and okay to use. So, Mm -hmm. but I do think the most important takeaway for me is to acknowledge how dangerous some of Singer's ideas were, um, particularly in the context of recent news stories. Singer actively fought for birth control to prevent the lower class population from reproducing. And we still see this today as recently stories came out from immigrant detention centers that women were being forced Mm -hmm. to undergo hysterectomies and other gynecological surgeries without their knowledge or consent. So while birth control is essential and women gaining control over their lives and gaining power otherwise unattainable, we have to be so careful. The point of birth control is to be pro-choice, that a woman can choose when and whether to have children. And that ball can and should only be in each individual woman's court. 
Yeah, exactly. I completely agree. Um, yeah, I really agree with you. I, I think my biggest, one of my biggest takeaways, um, would be like you said, gratitude. Um, you and I come from a family of very fertile women. Mm -hmm. Our grandma was one of 11 children. We have an aunt with nine children. Um, and I, it just was really powerful to me to look at the timeline and to learn about what the situation was really was for, for families until so very recently that women really did not have any way of making choices about their families. And, um, just how that, how I, I think about my own life. I, I think because of our genes, it's, it's very possible that I would have had a baby every two years. I could have easily had nine or 10 children by now and could still be conceiving and giving birth at this point in my life. And I would not, I love my four children more than anything in the world. And I'm so grateful that I was able to have them when I wanted them. Um, it would not have been healthy for me or my husband or my children for me to have, you know, nine or 10 kids. It wouldn't have been healthy in my view for the planet either for if mm -hmm. everybody produces that many children, it's just not sustainable. Like you brought up with the data earlier. And so, um, I'm really, really grateful that birth control was developed. I'm grateful for the scientists who invented and worked on it. I'm grateful for the women and men um, that we didn't mention on this podcast, but everyone who worked to make this available to all human beings. I'm just really grateful. It's, it's a very recent um, development in human history that I wish had been available earlier and that many, many people need access to still now in the world. And, um, and, uh, sex education also is, is a huge part of that. That needs, that's another thing that I'm coming away with is thinking, how can I volunteer or become involved in, um, efforts to make sure that boys and girls are taught how their bodies work and taught how to have a happy, um, life of self-actualization, um, being deliberate about the number of children they bring into the world. So um, I guess those were my takeaways in addition to yours. Mm -hmm. um, so, well, thank you so much for being here, Courtney. Um, that it was a joy to talk about this. I always learn so much from you. So thanks for reading these texts with me and thanks for being here. Mm -hmm. Um, for our next two episodes, we will be reading works by Virginia Woolf. Uh, Woolf is perhaps best known for her groundbreaking novels she wrote between 1915 and 1941, all of which grapple with patriarchal oppression. And I recommend reading all her novels. I love Virginia Woolf. Um, but the works that we will be discussing on the podcast are two of her nonfiction works. First, uh, next time we'll be, we will be discussing her famous A Room of One's Own. And then afterward, we'll be discussing a collection of speeches called called Killing the Angel in the House. Both works are relatively short, and especially A Room of One's Own is a landmark text. So I highly recommend purchasing it uh, for your home library or checking it out from the library and reading it. It's, it's really um, 
essential reading, even if you just want a great book to read um, of 20th century literature. Um, Read as much of it as you can and look for insights that illuminate issues in your own life. I promise you will find many. And then join us next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Patriarchy.